Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. President Biden rallying world leaders to continue aid to Ukraine, but new corruption scandals in Ukraine are prompting allies to ask, where's all the money going? Reducing federal debt, House Republicans today publishing a blueprint laying out how the government can cut spending and balance out the budget over the next 10 years. A former Capitol Police chief back on the Hill today testifying on what he saw during the January 6th protest and urging Congress to give the Capitol Police chief more authority. And India is expelling a senior Canadian diplomat. Tensions are escalating between the two countries following the killing of a Sikh activist in Canada. Keep sending aid to Ukraine. That's the message from President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the UN General Assembly. But questions on accountability are mounting over the tens of billions of dollars in American taxpayer money already sent to that country. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Addressing world leaders at a UN General Assembly in New York today, President Biden says the future of the U.S. is bound with the world. That's as he calls on other countries to continue backing Ukraine by asking. If you allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? And the Ukrainian president, who stood before the UN General Assembly for the first time after the war began, echoed Biden's message. Ukraine is doing everything to ensure that after Russian aggression, no one in the world will dare to attack any nation. We must be united to make it. But Biden and Zelensky's call for more support for Ukraine at the UN is also directed toward lawmakers here in Washington, D.C., who are growing increasingly polarized over sending more taxpayer money to Ukraine. Providing aid is not just a matter of Ukrainian security, it's a matter of American security. I'm not voting for anything that funds Ukraine. Ukraine has been rocked by a flurry of corruption scandals recently as all six of Ukraine's deputy defense ministers were fired this week following the ousting of his defense minister. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who's going to confront Zelensky later this week, says he has some questions for him. Where's the accountability on the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? I think that's what the American public wants to know. But as President Biden lays out his vision on the world stage today, the influence of UN was called into question as all four other leaders of the UN Security Council chose not to show up today. They include leaders of Russia, China, France, and the UK. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. The House GOP will hold a first impeachment inquiry hearing into President Biden on Thursday of next week. This comes on the heels of Speaker Kevin McCarthy directing three House committees to kick off the proceedings. According to a House Oversight Committee spokesperson, lawmakers will focus on the constitutional and legal questions surrounding the president's alleged involvement in his son Hunter's business dealings. The committee is also planning to subpoena the bank records of two Biden family members, Hunter Biden and the president's brother, James Biden. The subpoenas are expected to be filed as early as this week. Meanwhile, the House is looking at curbing federal debt, not just in the short-term spending negotiations, but also in a 10-year guideline out today. It was due months ago. Republicans from the House Budget Committee on Tuesday released the long-awaited Congressional Budget Resolution, 
A law from the 80s set an April deadline for this blueprint, which is different from the annual spending budget currently talked about in the news. According to the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, a congressional budget resolution is a blueprint that guides fiscal decision-making in the Congress. The president doesn't sign the blueprint, meaning it's not an actual law and rather serves as a guide. The main talking point of Tuesday's announcement, curbing federal debt. And we have got to understand how hard this debt has been on our constituents and adjust our spending accordingly. For fiscal year 2024, which begins in just a few weeks, the blueprint recommends a spending limit of $1.5 trillion. That would bring spending back to fiscal year 2022 levels. It also says spending should only grow by 1% a year. That 1% means additional cuts when considering inflation and population growth. The blueprint also relies on economic growth to reduce debt. We return to pro-growth, pro-work, pro-energy policies that we know will reignite this economy and will return to what we were experiencing before COVID, which is unprecedented growth and, and prosperity. The goal of Tuesday's blueprint is to balance out the federal budget over the next decade. Lawmakers are set to mark up the resolution on Wednesday. However, it's expected to die in the Senate, which is currently at odds with House Republicans over the annual spending budget. As for that budget, Republicans on Monday introduced 8% spending cuts for most federal agencies, excluding military and disaster spending. The White House on Tuesday responded to those proposed cuts, saying, With less than two weeks before the end of the fiscal year, extreme House Republicans are playing partisan games with people's lives and marching our country toward a government shutdown. The Biden administration says those cuts will take away funding from key issues. The House is expected to vote on this bill on Thursday, although a key procedural step was postponed Tuesday, so it's not clear if the Thursday vote will take place. Also in Washington, Stephen Sund, former Capitol Police chief, sat down before a House subcommittee today. He testified on his experience during the January 6th protests. Sund urged Congress to give the Capitol Police chief the authority to request assistance from federal law enforcement agencies whenever it's needed to ensure the safety of the Capitol. The January 6th attack at the Capitol was preventable. If the intelligence had been accurately reported and the FBI and DHS had followed their policies and established practices, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Sund said that it took the Capitol Police Board over an hour to approve his request for the National Guard on January 6th. He added that he was repeatedly denied assistance due to concerns over, quote, politics and optics. Currently, the Capitol Police Chief has the authority to request help during emergencies, but board approval is required if the request is made in advance. Last month, Sund appeared on Tucker Carlson on X, formerly known as Twitter, defending his role as Capitol Police Chief. He resigned back in 2021, shortly after the January 6th protest. In international news, India is expelling a senior Canadian diplomat. Tensions are escalating between the two countries following the killing of a Sikh activist in Canada. Hardeep Singh Niger, a leading Sikh activist and Canadian citizen, was gunned down in June in British Columbia. He was wanted by Indian authorities who had accused him of ties to terrorism for years. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Monday that his government was investigating allegations of India's involvement in the assassination. Later on Monday, Canada expelled an Indian diplomat. India fought back with its own expulsion today and accused Canada of interfering in its internal affairs. 
The movement to establish an independent Sikh homeland has been a target of the Indian government since the 1980s. Canada is home to a sizable Sikh diaspora, making up about 2% of its population. Coming up, the missing F-35 fighter jet has been found. Find out where it was located after a mishap forced the pilot to eject. Police find a bag of fentanyl at a New York City daycare. A total of four toddlers were apparently sickened by the fentanyl, including one who died. Is migration being weaponized? An investigative reporter in Panama says the U.S. should learn from Hong Kong. Find out what he's seeing in the ever-growing migrant camps headed for the U.S. And a teen runs over a cyclist in Las Vegas. Police call it an intentional hit and run of a retired police officer. We'll have details when we come back. Welcome back in South Carolina. The debris of what's believed to be the missing F-35 fighter jet has been found. The aircraft crashed on Sunday following a mid-air mishap. Joint Base Charleston announced Monday afternoon that search teams found debris from the missing F-35 fighter jet in rural Williamsburg County, South Carolina. The debris field was located two hours northeast of the military base. The military thanked local and state authorities as well as the FAA for the search. Residents were asked to avoid the area while a recovery team worked to secure it. The F-35B fighter jet belonged to a Marine Corps base in North Carolina. It crashed during a mission Sunday afternoon. The military didn't say what mission it was performing, but said the jet had a mishap mid-air. The Marine Corps said Monday, the mishap is currently under investigation and we are unable to provide additional details to preserve the integrity of the investigative process. The pilot was ejected safely out of the aircraft and was taken to a hospital in stable condition. The F-35B is worth around $90 million. It's among the most advanced fighter jet models. The aircraft is capable of vertical takeoff and landing and has stealth modes to shield it from radar. This is the third Class A mishap for the U.S. Marine Corps over the past six weeks. Incidents are classified as such when damages exceed $2.5 million. A Department of Defense aircraft is rendered beyond repair or when there is loss of life or permanent disability. The Pentagon plans to investigate the disappearance of the fighter jet. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said they will be transparent after the probe is completed. A one-year-old baby dead, possibly due to fentanyl exposure. New York City daycare center owner Gray Mendez and her tenant Carlisto Acevedo Brito are now facing federal charges for running a drug operation from a daycare center. Police discovered a kilogram of fentanyl near an area where children nap. A total of four toddlers were apparently sickened by the fentanyl, including the one who died. The one-year-old Nicholas Dominici died Friday. There were also two two-year-old boys and an eight-month-old girl who were affected. Authorities found them at the daycare center with symptoms of opioid exposure and quickly administered Narcane, an opioid antidote. The two defendants face a maximum sentence of life in prison and a minimum sentence of 20 years. And who's coming through Panama? thousands per day, according to an investigative reporter on the ground. We spoke earlier today about what he's seeing and what's driving the surge. 
Michael Yan, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm down in Darien again. As you know, it's like my home away from home, Darien Gap, down near uh, Columbia. And so this is where a huge amount of the aliens come in who are going to the United States. At this rate, it's probably three to 4,000 per day. But last month, according to the Panamanian government, 82,000 came through. Uh, but I think in 2024, you're going to see no less than a million. And I'm saying that based on we're watching infrastructure, the routes from Colombia into the Darien Gap uh, on the Panama side, they're getting shorter and they're getting more well-trodden. They're getting like people are putting steps in some places and ropes and that sort of thing. And um, so the, the routes are getting shorter. They're still extremely dangerous. Dozens probably per day are actually dying. Uh, but then so they're shorter, safer. Uh, faster as well, not just shorter, but also faster, which there is a difference. And, and then the camps are getting bigger. Now, in addition to the camps getting bigger, they're becoming more efficient and faster. So basically, you've got the entire system is both shrinking in, in, in length and speeding up and growing in width. So in other words, it's getting it's growing in all dimensions. Wow, and it seems right now in a lot of headlines we're seeing more news about the southern border, but you're actually where a lot of the people come in first to get there, as you mentioned, in Panama down by the Darien Gap. And you posted a video online showing a family or at least a father and son from Wuhan trying to come in. These are Chinese nationals. And you mentioned they seem nice enough, but then you also mentioned maybe some from Venezuela appear like gang members. What have you found about the reasons of why these people want to come to America? So there's going to be a lot of different motivations. Some are clearly running from the law. We know that prisons have been dumped out in Venezuela, for instance, and a lot of these are just barrios, uh, transport, you know, leaving one barrio and going to create another barrio in the United States, right? So that's some. There's others who appear to be professionals, like some of the Chinese that I do encounter out there. They seem like they're of professional sorts, and others not. Others, we know some Chinese go to work on, for instance, marijuana grows in places like Oklahoma. There's marijuana farms where it's Chinese work on in places like Oklahoma. And so we know that some of that is occurring. Uh, and others are probably paramilitary. I mean, that's actually pretty much a done deal. So there's, there's many things going on here. There's many different ecosystems of people coming in. Michael, you mentioned how these groups are expanding. You're seeing more and more migrants. Any idea on why and what's driving the surge? Yeah, United States government is clearly doing a huge part of it, and others, World Economic Forum, is openly doing it, and as is uh, Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it's very clear that the United States government, this camp right by me, about 300 yards away, is called San Vicente. If you look on my Twitter, I've put up uh, photos in the past about how, how much this thing is growing. It's growing immensely. Uh, since from 2022 to 2023, it's two and a half, three times bigger, and it's far more efficient. That's just one camp. Even though the camps are much more efficient and faster now, the flows are increasing so quickly that they can't, they just can't uh, keep them pushed out to Costa Rica. Now, between Costa Rica and Panama, that border is now open as of a few days ago, at least as of a few days ago. Just expanding on that, it seems Colombia's leader is actually greenlighting the way for a lot of migrants to head to the U.S. That's part in part due to economic reasons, but what he called reparations for what the U.S. did to Latin America in the past. And this is despite Colombia, Panama, and the U.S. signing an agreement back in April this year to end the, quote, illicit movement of people through the Darien Gap. Why do you think there's this contrast now? 
Well, actually, uh, the reparations thing, you see this everywhere. Of course, we see it in the United States. It's, it's a divide and conquer strategy. It's an information campaign. I've, I've written about this for at least 10 years. Like, for instance, if you go into Colombia, now you'll see, that, like, one uh, Colombian senator I had lunch with a couple of years ago, I guess, Maria Cabal is her name. And she said, Michael, look, they're making all the indigenous people fight us, fight each other and fight us. You know, why are they doing that? So they're doing it within Colombia, too, not just, you know, from Colombia to the United States. Beware of cultures who are constantly pretending to be or are actually the victim. Every culture is a victim. But if you're making an information campaign, you want to make somebody, you know, basically carry the cross. Right. And and, 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 and force people uh, to, to, to feel it. this is what starts wars. These, these information campaigns, if they're really done well, you can't tell that you're in it and you're afraid to say anything against it because people will label you, of course, conspiracy theorists. You'll see a lot of that happening on the border issues. And Michael, given that, what's America's future if there is no policy change? America will be destroyed. I mean, that's pretty simple. I mean, you know, it's like if, you're, if you light your house on fire, your house will be destroyed. It's being destroyed. And while meanwhile, Congress, you know, I get messages from congressmen every day and I've taken two down here and other places, you know, at some point I'm like, what's the use? I mean, you guys are out there debating about what to do and this, that and the other. It's like debating about, you know, when are we going to call the fire department? It's too late. You, you understand there's at least 10,000 per day coming into the United States. Hong Kongers put up with this migration from the mainland for years, 100 to 150 people per day, year after year, Mandarin speakers. CCP operatives into the Cantonese-speaking separate culture of Hong Kong, and finally those, you know, over time, those people from the mainland took key positions in teachers' unions and that sort of thing, uh, elected officials, and the next thing you know, 2014 and then 2019, you saw the big uprisings, and now Hong Kong's gone. So it happened, it was more like a vine growing around the house. It was like a kudzu, right? And that's what's happening to the United States, kudzu, you're being strangled. It's happening all across Europe, strangled, kudzu. It's weaponized migration. This is old stuff. It goes way back. This is an old war strategy. And what's the solution here then? Close the border. Close the border. Close the border. Close the border and mass deportation, period. Anything less than that is not an adult answer. Michael Yon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Turning now to California, the mother of the suspect who shot and killed a Los Angeles deputy sheriff over the weekend says her son is diagnosed with schizophrenia. Kevin Cataneo Salazar's mom told media outlets she's been trying to get help for her 29-year-old son for the past five years, but he repeatedly refused. After he was arrested for the murder of Deputy Ryan Klinkenbrumer, she told the Los Angeles Times, quote, it's not my son that did it, it's the disease that did it. She says he heard voices and had twice attempted to kill himself, but he was still able to legally purchase guns. His sister explained he'd been put under multiple 72-hour psychiatric holds, but was released each time. Authorities say they're still investigating what led to the shooting. Also on the West Coast, a 17-year-old accused of a hit-and-run killing a cyclist in Las Vegas. After video of the incident was shared online, police determined it was intentional. The cyclist was a retired California police chief, remembered for his big heart and love of coffee. NTD's David Lamb reports, and just a warning, the following footage and audio may be disturbing. Uh, ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Former California police chief Andreas Probes was killed August 14th in Las Vegas after a hit and run. Authorities say the attack was intentional and seek to prosecute one of the juvenile perpetrators as an adult. Circulating footage appears to show the moment when the driver runs into 64-year-old Probes who was riding a bicycle. NTD clipped out the moment of impact, but after hitting the rear bike wheel and Probes, the perpetrators left the scene. Probes was a retired police chief from Bell, California, going for his morning bike ride. Probes' wife, Crystal Probes, told Fox News Digital that it's not just about one victim. We as a nation are victims. We are victims of senseless crimes. We all need to show up and show our outrage in the courtrooms. She said her husband's murder is an example of the anarchy that prevails in many U.S. cities. Las Vegas police said they were able to locate the vehicle and arrest the driver, a 17-year-old male. Clark County District Attorney said, I am confident that justice will be served in this matter once the investigation is complete and the appropriate charges have been filed. Prosecutors are still looking for the second person, apparently a teenage boy, who was in the car filming the incident. Anyone with information can contact the Homicide Unit at 702-828-3521 or online. David Lamb, NTD News. Over in Pennsylvania, the state is making changes to its election rules. It's becoming the 24th state in the nation to adopt what's called automatic voter registration. Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro's administration announced the decision today, saying it doesn't need legislation or regulation to make the change at driver's license centers. Under the new format, prompts on the center's computer screens will automatically take users to a template to register to vote. That leaves it up to them to opt out of registration. Previously, computer prompts asked users first whether they wanted to register to vote. 23 other states and Washington, D.C. already have varying models of automatic voter registration. Pennsylvania says there are currently 8.6 million registered voters in the state. Early voting in Virginia opens Friday. All 140 seats in the State House and Senate are up for election, and all possible outcomes are within reach. Redistricting and retirements make this year's election more competitive and uncertain than previous years. Republicans could keep the House and win the Senate, paving the way for Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin to achieve his agenda. Democrats could keep the Senate and flip the House, returning Virginia to its progressive trajectory under its two previous Democratic governors. The status quo is also possible, a divided government with a narrow majority by each party. Youngkin's victory in 2021 ended four years of state Democratic rule in the House, Senate and Governor's Office. Coming up, as world leaders meet at the UN today, we take a closer look at the UN's sustainability agenda. Why is the Chinese Communist Party taking such an active role in promoting it? A large crowd protests right outside the United Nations headquarters in New York City. Their focus, the Iranian president. The demonstrators are asking for regime change. And communist influence in elementary school. Education experts urge lawmakers to take action. Why they say Americans should be concerned. Stay tuned for more after the break.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. House Republicans released a long-awaited congressional budget blueprint. They say it will balance out federal spending over the next decade. That's as a key procedural vote on the short-term stopgap measure was canceled today as a government shutdown looms. India expelled a senior Canadian diplomat after Canada expelled an Indian diplomat a day earlier. Canada is investigating if India was behind the killing of a Sikh activist in Canada in June. President Biden delivered a speech to the United Nations General Assembly today. He called on world leaders to support Ukraine and reiterated U.S. support for the nation. And for more insights on Biden's speech and Communist China's involvement in a U.N. initiative, we spoke with award-winning international journalist and president of Liberty Sentinel Media, Alex Newman. He's also an Epic Times contributor. Alex Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. So, Alex, world leaders gathered in New York today for the U.N. General Assembly. What was your biggest takeaway? I think the most important thing that's happening right now is actually the SDG Summit of 2023. We're at the halfway point now since the Sustainable Development Goals, as they're called, were adopted in 2015 by the U.N. General Assembly. Uh, including Barack Obama, by the way, a big enthusiastic supporter of these. And, and at the time, the head of the U.N. General Assembly was calling this the master plan for humanity. And it's an all-encompassing policy document that deals with every area of our lives. And so they're actually having this critical summit there. They've got, I think, 80 world leaders speaking at the summit. And uh, they're strategizing how to accelerate the implementation of these things uh, for, so, so that people have an understanding of how uh, uh, really dangerous these are. Right after they were adopted, the CCP, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, came out and bragged through all their propaganda organs that they played a crucial role in developing this. They call it Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. And so right now they're actually laying the foundation for next year, the 2024, they call it the Summit of the Future, where they're going to radically empower the United Nations using the SDG as a roadmap for every area of government, law, life, family, education, healthcare, you name it. Uh, that's just so significant. And it's really not being reported much in the American media. And Alex, zooming in on that, especially on the SDGs and China's involvement, help us understand why the Chinese Communist Party is involved and so involved. Well, the Communist Chinese Party is actually really, really active in the United Nations. A lot of people don't realize this. Not only do they have a permanent seat at the Security Council, they have actual members of the CCP running numerous agencies, in fact, more than any other nation. The U.S. government only controls a fraction or Americans, I should say, only control a fraction of the specialized agencies of the UN. So the CCP has, has done a very deliberate initiative here where they're trying to take over UN agencies. They're trying to shift UN policies and international agreements in their direction. And actually, as you read Agenda 2030, the, the kind of communist totalitarian bent really comes through loud and clear. If you go to, for example, goal number 10, they, they actually are calling openly for not just national socialism, not just national wealth redistribution, but global wealth redistribution. They say repeatedly in this document that governments in the U.N. must change consumption and production. Of course, if governments are going to change consumption and production, that requires taking control of the means of production. I mean, all of this stuff is just slightly reworded talking points coming out of the Communist Manifesto, coming out of uh, Xi Jinping's little book. And so people need to be very aware. You know, when uh, the former Secretary General of NATO, Javier Solana, a self-described socialist, described Agenda 2030 as the next great leap forward, 
we should have been paying really close attention. And on that note, what does America's future look like if this gets adopted? Well, Barack Obama purported to sign up for it in 2015. Thankfully, this was never presented to the U.S. Senate for ratification, and therefore uh, it doesn't even have the appearance of legitimacy. It's not a binding treaty. That doesn't mean that they're not implementing it, right? Joe Biden and previously Barack Obama were using executive orders, uh, federal regulations to try to bring these goals to pass. If this happens, if this continues to move forward, there's another seven or eight years before the next goals are set to come in. Um, you can expect life on this planet to be radically restructured. It would be a massively more empowered United Nations, uh, far less freedom. When they talk about wealth redistribution, I think it's important to point this out, too. Their vision of wealth redistribution is looting the American middle class and redistributing the wealth of the American middle class to the CCP, to the CCP's allies who have impoverished and kept in poverty the people of what used to be called the third world. Uh, this is a very, very dangerous vision. When you look at what they're talking about in education in goal number four, uh, they're very clearly talking about indoctrination. They want the children, they say in there, to, to be so indoctrinated. They won't just accept these UN ideas, really CCP-backed UN ideas, they will promote them is the terminology that's used there. So we're really talking about drastic limitations on individual freedom, uh, radical restructuring of the economy, and ultimately an end to self-government. So the stakes could not be higher here. Thankfully, we still have a lot of tools in the United States to make sure that this, uh, I would call it a horror show, does not fully get imposed on the American people. Indeed. Well, Alex Newman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And earlier today, a massive crowd gathered outside the United Nations in New York. The reason? To protest the Iranian president's expected appearance at the UN General Assembly. Entity's Jason Perry was on the scene. A large crowd gathered right outside of the United Nations headquarters in New York City. The rally is part of a week-long campaign against Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, who was set to speak at the United Nations on Tuesday. The event was hosted by the Organization of Iranian American Communities, or OIAC. Former Senator Robert Torricelli said this about the Iranian president. When Raisi walks to the podium today, and shakes the hands of the leaders of the United Nations. Understand that the hand that he stretches out has the blood on it yes. of tens of thousands of martyrs from the genocide of 1988. Rally goers allege that Raisi was involved in the decision to execute, by some estimates, 30,000 political prisoners in Iran, known as the 1988 Iranian massacre. Another speaker had this to say. The issue of the hijab goes beyond just about women choosing the way they dress. The fight runs deeper than that. It's a fight for the reconstruction of the social laws and practices that determine a woman's life and place in society, including within their own families. And I got a chance to speak with the chair of the advisory board of the OIAC, and she said this about Raisi. He does not belong to the United Nations. The seat, UN seat, belongs to the people of Iran. So the message of the communities, uh, community members that have gathered here today is to make sure that the message of the Iranian people is heard at the UN hallways by the world leaders, which is that we want to overthrow this regime. We want this regime gone. 
And I spoke with Majid Sadichpour, political director of the OIAC, who shared how the regime has affected him and others. You know, members of my, my primary family has been executed during the 1988 massacre. And thousands of people who participated in today's rally, a lot of them have, have first-hand accounts, loved ones who have lost, who they have lost in the 1988 massacre or in the uprisings that have followed over the past four decades, three, three and a half decades in Iran. And we also heard from a high school student who shared his thoughts on the recent prisoner exchange in which the U.S. released $6 billion to Iran as part of a deal to free five Americans. All this is doing is telling the Iranian regime, hey, if you take more hostages, we'll pay you money and we'll give you your criminals back. That's not a good message to send the terrorists. Now that that rally's over, there's also another rally going on protesting the Iranian regime. And they're both right outside of the United Nations building. They want to make their voices heard during the same time the Iranian president speaks at the United Nations. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. And the five Americans who were held prisoner for years in Iran home at last. An Army airfield at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, witnessed the long-awaited emotional family reunions. Yeah, amazing. It's amazing. Un-freaking believable. We're so grateful to be together after eight years. It's unbelievable. The nightmare is finally over. And this is the real, real hero of this story, surviving eight years of brutal treatment but never never losing hope and, and and showing what happens when you're hopeful when you fight why am i saying this yeah it's over i'm done the returning americans embraced their family and friends two of the five iranian detainees arrived in doha on their way home the other three chose to remain in the u.s Meanwhile, President Biden is facing heat over the controversial swap deal, with some lawmakers calling it a ransom payment. China-funded programs in U.S. schools could be indoctrinating American children. Education experts are saying these programs also pose national security threats. NTD's Arlene Richards covers a hearing that discusses the potential risks. An education subcommittee on Tuesday heard expert testimony on how the Chinese Communist Party is influencing U.S. K-12 schools. Representative Aaron Bean says the CCP influence is rampant in America's classrooms. Over 500 K-12 schools across the United States have allowed the CCP to establish itself in their halls under the guise of Confucius classrooms. But when you pull back the curtain on these cultural exchange centers, you find a CCP-backed agenda that undermines the principles upon which our education system is built. And he said the classrooms threaten America's national geopolitical and academic interests. They are explicitly organized by the CCP Politburo to project soft power on American students. A parent advocate said most of these programs went underground during the last administration. But we found that over the past decade, over $17 million has flowed to 143 districts and private K-12 schools across 34 states in D.C. This is likely a low figure, given that both the U.S. State Department and the Senate have estimated hundreds more programs in existence. Representative Bobby Scott said this. We can provide students with an inclusive, accurate, and well-funded education without conspiracy theories that fuel anti-Asian discrimination. One of the witnesses explained anti-Asian discrimination. 
It has become a harmful pattern that when the United States has tensions with an Asian country, Asian Americans and immigrants face the backlash at home and become collateral damage. Perceived as not American, we too often are blamed for the actions of a foreign government or entity. Representative Lisa McLean shared her immediate concerns. So I'm here to represent our kids, the American children, the majority. That's my job. That's what I'm elected to do. After the hearings, Representatives Virginia Fox and Burgess Owens said Americans should be concerned about the CCP. They mean us ill and the, they want to take over the world. If we have our, a foreign enemy that literally, uh, through lack of transparency, comes to our classrooms and teaches our kids things that are not true, then that should be a concern to all of us. In closing, Representative Dean said it's important to understand that it's not against the Chinese people, but it's against the aggressive nature of the Chinese Communist Party. West Point is facing a lawsuit for considering race in the admissions process. It's from the same group that sued other schools, leading to the landmark Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. The Supreme Court rulings in June ended race-conscious admissions in colleges, but the decision excluded military academies. The Students for Fair Admissions group is now filing the latest lawsuit, seeking to expand the ruling to West Point. The group said in the lawsuit, quote, West Point's use of race in the admissions process is unconstitutional. They are asking the court to stop West Point from knowing a candidate's race during admissions. They claim that the military academy currently considers race for hundreds of applicants each year. Coming up, video game addiction. The World Health Organization says it's a real disease. What can parents do if they think their kids are hooked? We speak with a psychologist. And in the NFL, a gruesome knee injury last night ended Nick Chubb's day and season. Today, the Browns updated his status. We'll have that and more when we come back. Welcome back. Many children are addicted to video games, harming their development, health and behavior. What can parents do to get their children off the screen? NTD's Faye Quarter talks with a psychologist who advises parents on this issue. There are an estimated 3 billion video game players in the world. And studies suggest that as many as 100 million of them are addicted. The World Health Organization even recognizes the addiction as a mental health disorder. Young children are especially vulnerable. Video game addiction can hurt their health. Sitting too much can cause weight gain or poor posture. Playing the game itself may cause repetitive stress injuries. Staring at the screen for too long can cause eye strain and disrupt their sleep schedule. You look at things like mental health. So you see a lot of feelings of sadness, loneliness, um, depression is very, very common when kids are so heavily involved in gaming that it's becoming a problem for them. Uh, academically, grades almost always suffer. Uh, that can be an indicator that, hey, something's going on here. Uh, people spend less time with their loved ones. Psychologist Alex Anderson Call works with parents who have kids addicted to gaming. He says many games are designed to be addictive. Games also offer an element of escapism. When some kids don't like their real lives, they're drawn into the virtual world of the game. And during the COVID lockdowns, they played even more. 
Anderson Call advises parents with game-addicted children, communicate with the kids, try to understand their perspective, ask them what they're getting out of the game. Anderson Call says many parents skip this step and go straight to making demands. Set a timer, make it so they can play only for a particular amount of time or on a particular day. Set up a reward system, give kids game time for doing chores or getting good grades. Encourage them to do other fun things like hanging out with friends and family or playing sports. And finally, this may seem a bit counterintuitive, but actually playing together with your kid video games with them. It can strengthen your relationship as a parent. Yeah, it strengthens that relationship as a parent. Um, it can promote good communication skills. And it actually can help you guide the gaming experience. Instead of being a demanding tyrant. That way, you first bond with your kids. Then you can gently inch them out of playing too much. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on Michigan State football coach Mel Tucker. That's right, Tiff. A day after Michigan State University told suspended football coach Mel Tucker about their intent to fire him after sexual harassment allegations emerged in media reports last week, Tucker responded Tuesday saying, quote, other motives are at play. Now, by firing Tucker, the university would avoid paying the $79 million left on his contract. One of the flaws Tucker noted is the timeline of when university officials knew about the allegations, which were made by none other than a sexual assault awareness speaker named Brenda Tracy. Tucker said, quote, MSU knew about the information on which it supposedly relies to end my contract since at least March 2023, yet only after Ms. Tracy and potentially others leaked the confidential investigation report to the press did MSU suddenly decide this same information warrants termination. Now Tracy says Tucker made unwelcome advances after she was hired to speak to his players about sexual misconduct. Tucker, who is married, says they had a consensual, intimate relationship. The fourth-year head coach has a 20-14 overall record with the Spartans. And in the NFL, Cleveland Browns running back Nick Chubb's season is over after he injured his knee in last night's loss to Pittsburgh. Chubb, who's been a Pro Bowl selection each of the last four seasons, will undergo surgery, though head coach Kevin Stefanski declined to say what the specific injury was. Though to anyone watching, it was clearly something with his left leg. The Browns will now turn to second-year running back Jerome Ford to be their feature back going forward. After your sports viewing schedule tonight, all 30 baseball teams are in action, including an Arizona-San Francisco matchup where Diamondback starter Zach Gallen will go for his 16th win, which would tie him for second place behind Atlanta's Spencer Strider. And that's all for your sports news today. Tiff, over to you. If you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.